Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Will Nelligan and Chuck Trafton, and we're here to continue our mini-series on ISAs. Chuck, Will, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. This is Chuck. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having us. Great to be on. Awesome. Chuck, why don't you first start with introducing uh, how you got into the ISA space and what has that lead been? Sure. I've been investing in education-related opportunities for 23 years, uh, personally and through hedge funds and mutual funds uh, control. and. Three years ago, I came across the ISA concept and was immediately taken by it as an alternative to private student loans. And so I've spent most of my waking hours the last three years working with schools, service providers, rating agencies, investment banks, regulators, politicians, and others in the higher ed ecosystem to help do our small part to help create this new asset class. And um, for the first couple of years, it was a big project to run around the country working with schools to help them create programs and invest in them. And one thing that my partners and I quickly discovered is that the the real potential for ISAs uh, will only be able to be met if there is a consistent capital market for these where there's liquidity, size, and a, and a clearing mechanism. Because when we started three years ago, only three schools had ISAs. Today, there's about 40. And by the end of the year, there'll be over 100 schools. And each of them wants uh, third-party funding. Because if you design the ISA right, all the students will take it. And if all the students are taking ISA, that leaves a big funding gap for the school where nobody pays up front, but they're paying over time. And so schools love it when investors can come in and participate in these programs and front the school some money in advance to help them with their working capital. And at the same time, investors want to uh, invest in these unique assets. Number one, it's a good return. Number two, they're very levered to wage inflation. And that makes them a unique asset class. Investors, as you know, typically do not like inflation. It eats away at the value of their cash flows. And so investors pay premiums to protect the portfolio against inflation. And here, ISAs are similar, uh, you know, a call option on wages. They're very levered to wages and, and hopefully inflation. And that makes them a totally unique asset class. And finally, they're considered a major impact investment because every dollar of ISAs is another student loan that's off the streets. And that's considered a social good by many. And so there's a great demand for investors to participate in these programs. There's a growing number of schools that are creating these assets and want investors to participate in the programs. But it's very inefficient and risky for schools to go around themselves shopping these programs to the street. It's not what the schools do. At the same time, the investors aren't going to chase around schools around the country negotiating individual terms. And so earlier this year, we launched 
Edley, which is the ISA marketplace. Um, by the end of the summer, we'll have over a thousand investors registered at Edley, which is uh, includes some of the biggest hedge funds in the country, high net worth individuals, family offices, institutions, banks, insurance companies, people that want access to this new asset class. Uh, we launched uh, our first uh, offering earlier this year. We placed $2 million for Holberton School in San Francisco, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. Holberton is a, a two-year technical training school. I wouldn't call it a boot camp. It's a two-year program. Many of the students get $80,000 internships their second year, and the graduates are averaging over $100,000 salary when they get out, which is higher than Stanford or MIT, and there's no tuition up front. And we placed $2 million worth of that with six different investors. We could have placed $200 million worth of that. It's one of the highest quality ISA programs in the country. And important in that is that the schools are willing to take a significant amount of skin in the game, which is kind of the game changer relative to other ISA programs in the past. And what we're doing right now is working with many, many other schools to replicate that kind of program. And we're warehousing a whole bunch of uh, ISAs this summer for various schools and plan on a public offering of ISAs in October, which I think could be a milestone event for this industry and uh, to help this asset class really fulfill its potential. So that's the background on on how we got here and, and what we're doing. And uh, before transitioning to Will, can you say a bit more on what that public offering could look like and why, why that'd be a, a game changer? Yeah, it's a public offering, but these are private securities. So uh, the investors on the Edley platform are accredited uh, investors. These are private securities. It's not like buying a stock, um, but it's very similar to what you might get at Yield Street or one of the similar marketplaces. It's a revolutionary concept for schools to be able to gain access to their to liquidity for their ISA programs uh, because you know, today, in order for most of these schools to grow enrollment, they need to sell more equity. And that's very, very expensive and inefficient and eventually not scalable. And so what, uh, what schools like Holberton can do is come into the Edley marketplace several times a year um, when they have a, a, a large enough batch of ISAs to, to sell, and we can guarantee them the, the best price. Uh, we've got hundreds of investors competing on value. And so for a school to be able to get quick and easy liquidity for their programs uh, allows them to to grow and, and uh, fulfill their growth needs without suffering the massive dilution that, that additional equity would, would require. Our programs are a little bit different than others. If you go to edley.info and, and read about our ISA principles, you'll notice that we take great care to make sure that these programs are designed, first of all, with the student in mind. Uh, we try to create programs where the out, outgoing cash flow from each student is expected to be about the same as if they took a private student loan. And so given the choice of, of an ISA or a student loan, the students will take an ISA every time. We ask schools to have financial skin in the game to ensure their alignment of interests. And it's taken us a couple years to figure out exactly what that needs to look like in order for institutional investors to buy a couple billion dollars of this every year. 
and we've cracked that nut. We know exactly what they need to look like. Um, we seek tuition funding for all students, regardless of their field of study. I think what a lot of people are worried about is, oh, we're just going to cherry pick the STEM students out of the school and, and no one will invest in the poetry majors. And that's, that's not the case at all in our programs. Uh, we're not out to cherry pick the best students in a school. We're trying to allow investors to invest in the best schools in the country. A major differentiator for us is that we do not use FICO and we do not use cosigners. Uh, since the ACA in 2010, the private student loan market, as it is today, has been completely dominated by FICO and by cosigners. And this is a major catch-22 for the students who are uh, outside the, the mainstream financial system. This is a major barrier to financial uh, to to uh, a financial barrier to, to education for thousands of students. If you don't have wealthy parents to co-sign, you can't get a private student loan. If you don't have a 700 FICO, you're going to be paying very, very harsh terms on these, on these student loans. And we do not use FICO. We do not use co-signers. The defining aspect of most ISAs and definitely all of ours is that there is a minimum income threshold below which students don't make payments. Part of the problem with student loans is that life happens. And if a student graduates and needs to take a year off to take care of a sick parent or go back to graduate school or become an entrepreneur for a year where they're not getting a salary or they're making a very low salary, they're not obligated to make payments to the ISA. And so the ISA with the minimum income threshold are much more flexible than a student loan, which you need to pay every month, no matter what. There's also a very reasonable cap on the total amount of payments that a student will make, typically you know, one and a half or two times the tuition. So even if we got Mark Zuckerberg or Shaquille O'Neal in a class, they're not going to pay us any more than the average marketing major will at, at Purdue, uh, for example. Um, so there's a maximum cap. And so our ISAs are progressive in the sense that higher earners will pay more than low earners, but everybody pays the same predetermined cap. Okay. And as you probably know, with student loans, one of the major problems is uh, with compounded fees and interest, borrowers can end up paying back five, six, seven times what they borrowed. In fact, maybe sometimes they get into negative amortization and they'll never pay off a student loan. That's just not true with an ISA. Our ISAs have a predetermined cap and a predetermined amount of time that you're uh, eligible to make payments. We also uh, guarantee the students have enough time after graduation to find a job, so they have a grace period. And this message that schools uh, can, can, once they have adopted this kind of program, the message to schools is, we're investing in you to the students. And the students take great value in that, knowing that if the education doesn't work out for them, they're not gonna pay for it. And at the same time, the school shares in, in the student's success and has liability uh, for their failure as a potential fair as, as an educational institution. And so I can get into the mechanics later about how we structure these, but to, to think of it as venture capital is the wrong impression. Anybody telling you they're making VC-type returns and ISAs are, is either shortchanging the schools or shortchanging the students. This is a unique asset class that's somewhere in between debt and equity. And we've squared that circle by involving the schools 
by who will take shared risk and shared liability and an alignment of interest where the schools have skin in the game with the students. And in that regard, uh, you know, we think that that we were talking about cost of capital a minute ago. The cost of capital for these schools is going to drop dramatically when they get access to a liquid market like Edley. And, and just just on that last point before transition, uh, you know, Ali Hamed wrote this piece basically saying that uh, right now ISAs seem like they have equity-like risk for debt-like returns. Why is he incorrect? Well, I think on the face of it, that is the knee-jerk reaction of a lot of investors. And I know Ali has has done a lot of work in the space and respect that opinion. I think that that's what we have spent the last two years solving for is if an ISA represents equity type risk, that would imply, well, if the student just goes backpacking for eight years and never makes a payment, you have a hundred percent downside. And the way that we structure these with schools is that the downside is not a hundred percent. At the same time, because the Due to the definition of ISA is you've got a, a maximum repayment cap of, say, one and a half times the tuition. So it's not possible to make 25, 30, 35% per year uh, in an ISA. And so what we do to structure these is to square that circle of downside risk versus limited upside is to triangulate on a very likely uh, downside in the mid-high single digits and uh, a targeted return in the teens. Mechanically, it's very, very difficult, even at an incredible school like Holburton, for ISA investors to make anything more than high teens, 22% maybe at the max. And just to be clear, Chuck, when you say that that um, there isn't 100% downside for the investor, you're saying that's because the school is a participant in the downside and actually some of the downside risk is redistributed to the school from the investor. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I'm an equity person by training. And when I met my partner, Chris Ricciardi, who's now Edley CEO, a couple of years ago, um, you know, he, he uh, has been one of the top structured finance people on Wall Street for 20 years. And he helped me wrestle down the ground the, the big question of what do these need to look like in order for institutions to buy them? And you had to take care of that equity type risk that Ali was concerned about and, and rightfully so, and turn that into something less than less than that, you know, limit the downside. And by having the school through various mechanisms I, I can't discuss in public, protect the investors from that potential downside. And more and more schools are willing to do this. First of all, when you offer an ISA, it's such a powerful message that your applications can go way up, uh, like by hundreds of percent. <clears throat> and most schools, uh, skills academies, colleges, universities, vocational schools, <clears throat> they spend 15 to 40 percent of their tuition on student acquisition costs, marketing, the expense of advertising and convincing schools to convincing students to apply and then to to uh, to enroll. And if we can take that student acquisition cost from a 30% ratio down to 15 or 20, the returns, the unit economics of the effect to the school can be geometric. And so the goal is get the school something close or better than the tuition they'd get if the student paid up front in cash 
and significantly lower their marketing costs. That's a, it's a, and schools are very much willing to uh, make that bet on themselves. You know, schools like Holberton and others, uh, they know what their students are capable of, and they know what the students are doing when they graduate. And they're very, very willing to take that risk because they see that as opportunity. Awesome. Will, why don't you introduce uh, what you're focused on, what, what inspired you to get into the ISA space, and, and what your, what your uh, focus and, and mission is with it? Sure, sure. So um, I, I came to ISAs maybe from the sort of precise inverse direction that Chuck did, I, you know, straight out of the alumni magazine. I, I first started thinking about them when I was in college. In fact, Total Serendipity was prepared to write my undergraduate thesis with my advisor, the only person in the history department who could tolerate my Lyndon Johnson hagiography, and he took a sabbatical. And I was left to do it with the only other person who was willing to, to supervise me, which was the provost at the time, who was a, a Russian historian. And he didn't want to write about Lyndon Johnson, and I didn't want to write about Russian history. What we compromised on was writing about something in the history of higher education. And he suggested endowments. And I had no finance background, made the mistake of not taking even, I'm embarrassed to admit, a single economics class in college. But the more that I read about them, the more I was, I was fascinated by this sort of unique, strange, really storied structure for holding and preserving the capital of a lot of important social institutions in, in our society. The, the, the first endowment was actually the yield from a hundred acres of land that Henry Lucas, who was a 13th century member of parliament held, which he donated on his death to Cambridge to found the Lucasian professorship, uh, which was first held by Sir Isaac Newton. So, you know, this is like an 800 year old instrument that, you know, there's $1.8 trillion held in endowment um, by foundations and colleges uh, in the United States alone. So I wrote this paper about them, chiefly about where they come from and, and particularly in the United States, the, the origin story of endowments as they related to higher education institutions, it really focused on the strangeness of having this large scale pool of capital that might be the largest scale capital source so intimately connected to a social mission, educating the citizenry, but also that enjoys this sort of strange and perverse insulation from the drumbeat of social impact, right? These institutions are, are for the most part, pretty cold-blooded in that way. Um, with the exception of sort of fits and starts of, of divestment agitations over the over the past 30 or 40 years. So I wrote a section on it on ways that we could change that and very inadvertently wrote um, about something that, that was a lot similar to ISAs, which is essentially endowments investing in, in loan funds for their own affiliated um, institutions. And uh, a friend of mine read it, recommended I read about ISAs, I read sort of two seminal documents now in our work. One is the the much discussed, uh, I think, 1955 paper that, that Milton Friedman wrote about them, and one that's less discussed, but for obvious reasons, I hope, gets more attention in the future, um, which is a proposal that, that the Johnson administration wrote in 1967 to create a, a federal ISA program. Read those, and, and you know, as Chuck has experienced, and I'm sure you have too, Eric, after that was just immediately hooked on this idea. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a notion that festers quickly when you give it a little bit of thought. So I was in FinTech venture capital for a while, trying to find ISA companies to invest in as a side project. This was a time when, when that, that was not an option anyway for an investor. And then went to the Robinhood Foundation, where I had an opportunity to, to sketch out and pilot a really small workforce training ISA 
uh, and then wound up starting a think tank with with a few friends where ISAs became sort of one of the one of the three key prongs of our work, and in particular building pilots of the model that we hoped could prove the the viability and the impact that we sort of intuited could exist um, if they were designed correctly. So I spent the past now almost four years doing variations of that, helping institutions, whether they're on the funding side or the education side, or in a couple of cases, actually, you know, public sector agencies explore design and operationalize ISA programs with the hope that the more institutional geographic demographic settings for ISAs that prove the financial viability and also prove the impact, you know, which I think of as a genuine improvement on the existing constellation of options that students have for financing that particular type of program. The more pilots that we can stand up that really demonstrate that, the more, uh, the stronger our case is um, that this should be adopted at, at large scale. So that's been my focus for the past four years, really, and in particular, uh, in the past year, it's been it's been sort of my sole focus professionally. Let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit, and perhaps Chuck will start with you. What is sort of the utopia you envision? You know, five years out, ten years out. Let's say the ISA concept really takes off. How how does society look look different? Well, if if ISAs are designed and funded properly, the will be successful in completely turning the tables on the incentive system in the higher ed and, and skills training uh, market in the U.S. Today, in the student loan rubric, schools have a totally perverse incentive to maximize the tuition that the student can pay up front. And it doesn't matter to the school what happens to the students after they get out. Yes, in theory, it matters for the reputational and the branding and the goodwill of the school, but they have no financial incentive for that student to to get a you know, to make a reasonable living after they leave, and that's what part in part what's led us to where we are today, uh, which is skyrocketing tuition costs, non-tuition costs, an increasingly dubious uh, ROI. So I envision the next five years, a whole new equity market existing, which hopefully will be the Edley platform, um, where schools that uh, are invested in their students uh, will have at the ready capital from the public market. And this is a quite the breath of fresh air for this millennial generation. The number one financial challenge in this country right now is how can we get the millennials the education they desperately need without wrecking the balance sheet. And today that's only the only way to, to fund your, your education, uh, unless you're incredibly wealthy, is through debt. And a little bit of equity, whether we pay all the tuition or a part of it, can go a long way. Will, is there anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way that I think about that is we've seen, I think, Pat, in, in particular over the past two years, an increasing focus in the in the national policy conversation on on student debt and on you know the the quote unquote student debt crisis, and I think what we forget really is obviously there are things that have to change about the current system. We shouldn't be garnishing anyone's social security check to pay off the parent plus loan that they co-signed with their child. You know, income based repayment plans should be simpler to understand. They should be opt out rather than opt in. Like there are a number of sort of fixes to that system 
that I think are incredibly appealing, but the preoccupation is, is too narrow. What we're talking about actually is a deeper crisis, which I think is a crisis of, of access, of affordability, of, as Chuck mentioned, of outcomes, of institutional quality. And so I think, you know, rather than think of ISAs as sort of the next best improvement on financing, I really think of ISAs as a lever for institutional change. And I would hope, right. you know, at large scale, where ISAs are broadly accessible, students attending a, a, a host of, of types of institutions and individual institutions can access them. You know, I think to give you one particularly vivid example, when those schools think about needing to increase their revenue, right now, we know the levers that they think they can pull. But in a world where ISAs are, are you know, a leading feature of the higher education financing ecosystem, I hope they'll introduce a new lever that's further investing in the outcomes of their graduates. So, you know, rather than thinking about juicing revenue by, you know, addressing the tuition discounting rate or uh, enrolling more students who, who can pay fully or, or pay a larger fraction of, of the total cost of tuition, I'd love them to think about investing in two additional counselors in the career center or investing in a new academic program that's particularly aligned to an emergent need in, in, in the regional and national uh, labor market that they serve. Um, so just getting these institutions to really think more creatively and nimbly and hold themselves accountable internally to the trajectories they generate for their own students. And then on the front end, also think more broadly about the students that they enroll we have a pretty clear picture now, particularly over the past five years of the, both the systematic state level disinvestment from higher education, right? 2014 was the first year in American history, or at least in recorded American history, that state university systems derived more of their revenue from tuition than from state subsidy. And the results of that are clear. I mean, if you look at the University of California system, the crown jewel of public education in America, by, by a long shot, really, double-digit declines on some campuses in the percentages of the student body that's Pell eligible. That is the percentage of the student body that is poor. That is the percentage of the student body that has the most to gain from a low-cost, high-quality degree. And so these are, these are challenges that burdensome amounts of student debt, increasing amounts of student debt, increasing amounts of student debt defaults are uh, symptomatic of but rather than just address the symptoms, I really want, want to be in a position where I'm doing something to address the root causes. And I think until we, we address the institutional decision-making about from admissions and enrollment all the way to the academic program, all the way through that to, to graduation and beyond, which obviously isn't completely a financing problem, but I think with the right financial model, financing can be a huge lever for changing that. Until we address that, I don't think we have we have our prospects of actually driving um, massive change to the broader system of, of 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 higher education. I don't think our chances of that are very good. And so, you know, I think if we look back in ten years on what does success mean, I think the least meaningful metrics are number of students who have ISAs or amount of money dispersed through ISAs or amount of capital in the ISA market. I think the most meaningful metrics will be uh, how many the attainment of low income people. How much have we increased the, the percentage of, of the poorest among us who have associate's degrees and bachelor's degrees or a meaningful post-secondary credential? 
Another metric will be economic mobility. How, how much are, are schools actually enrolling in those low-income students and graduating them into the middle class? And so, you know, I think a decade from now, if I'm looking for leading indications of success in what, you know, Chuck and I and a lot of other people are, are doing right now in ISAs, a lot of it will be pointed at how much we've been able to catalyze meaningful change in the behaviors of education institutions. I'd, I'd add on to that. This is Chuck. I would add on to that. One area that has a lot to gain from the ISA market's uh, acceptability and growth are the vocational schools. Today in the U.S., there's 7 million open jobs and there's only 6 million job seekers. And that's an unprecedented situation and speaks to how strong our economy is right now. But we have a, a significant supply-demand mismatch of skilled industrial labor, okay? So I'm as bullish on welding as I am on coding. I think most people who are investigating ISAs realize code schools and skills academies of many stripes have been the early adopters of ISAs for a lot of good reasons. Um, we're working with a welding school in the Deep South right now who in, a, in an eight-month program for about the price as you would pay to go to one year of a state university, uh, the students on average have two job offers before they graduate at $60,000 a year. And the classes are half full. Okay, you talk to any industrial CEO in the country, his number one problem right now is availability of skilled labor, HVAC, plumbing, welding, all kinds of, of skilled industrial labor that there's this huge shortage of in the U.S. today. You know, there's a million open IT jobs in the country right now, and we're only graduating the same amount of computer science majors as we did in 2005. And that mismatch is why we have H-1B visas. It's why we outsource a lot of IT to India. And it's why there's persistent wage inflation in tech and persistently low unemployment in tech. It's a very, very similar situation brewing uh, with industrial skilled labor today, where if you can get the training, there's super positive careers ahead. But most vocational schools are unaccredited and not Title IV eligible. And so the government, you can't get a government student loan to go to a welding school for the most part. You have to take a private student loan. And as I just mentioned, the private student loan market is dominated by FICO and dominated by cosigners. And so if you don't have wealthy parents and you don't have a 700 FICO, it's very difficult for you to borrow money to go to a welding school. And so there's this huge catch-22. The people that can benefit the most uh, from a vocational school have been effectively shut out by this financing mechanism. And an ISA where we're taking equity in these cohorts uh, is uh, one potential solution to that access and affordability. Eric, I know you, you like to ask people, what is your request for startups? Not to preempt that question, but for those entrepreneurs listening, where is the whole burden of, of vocational training? Some enterprising entrepreneurs are going to be able to do that at scale. And there are large, uh, even publicly held vocational training schools like uh, UTI and, and Lincoln Tech, but they're just scratching the surface of what's, what's possible in 
airline mechanics, uh, welding, etc. And there is a massive business to be built in training these adults. Uh, these welding schools, the average age of the student is over 30 years old. And in many cases, uh, 50 years old. And these people are petrified of taking out student loans and many times don't even qualify for them. And so there's a huge potential for um, a training program or a school at scale in these vocations and a great deal of demand from ISA investors to fund them. Uh, Tony O from, from Vimo had a line in a podcast basically saying it's not a financial asset until it's someone's job to wake up every day and, and go buy them. So well, do you agree with that, that line? And who is going to be that person for, for ISA or that for ISA? Who is the investor? Tony O makes a great point. You know, there are very few dedicated ISA investors out there today, but they, you know, institutionally, like it's someone's job to buy ISAs, as Tony would, Tony would put it. There are a few, but there really just hasn't been enough of it to buy to really, uh, to generate like an active, you know, marketplace for this. And so one of the challenges is to actually create enough of these assets where they can participate. That's changing. It's changing dramatically. At Edley, we have the champagne problem of way more demand to buy ISAs than actually exist in the country. I mean, less than 10,000 students ever in the U.S. have been on the receiving end of an ISA. That's one reason why Washington so far hasn't uh, regulated the space, because it just hasn't affected enough Americans to bubble up to, to Washington's interest level. I think that's changing. More and more schools are adopting this. And so we're, we're taking care of the uh, origination issue that investors have of they need a consistent supply of stuff to buy, right? And the investors we talk to are already up to their eyeballs in student loans, and they want something else. And to get these kinds of returns, they need to buy more subprime auto paper, and they're up to their eyeballs in that as well. And this is a totally unique asset. And again, we've got significant amount of excess investor demand for high-quality ISAs than actually exist. But that is changing. And part of the messaging there is, is in our offering in October. I think people will see that, that high-quality programs are open to accredited investors to our platform. And we think this is going to change dramatically in the next few years uh, in terms of volumes and quality. If, if we're here five years from now or 10 years from now, and there's a few you know, unicorn ISA companies what are those companies doing? Like, do we think an upstart could be built today when it couldn't be built five years ago? And, and if yes, why do we think there'll be, you know, I say use cases outside the ones we've been talking about outside, maybe even higher education or education more broadly. How do you think about that? I've seen a lot of non-education ISA business plans over the years. Uh, a few of them have been really attractive. Most are still in the incubation stage. I uh, hear VCs talking about doing ISAs for kindergartners and things like this. Uh, uh, the, uni the next unicorn ISA company is probably one that we don't even know about right now that is going to do this at scale in the vocational space. I think there's going to be many, many unicorns in the IT skills academy world. Uh, companies like Holberton and, and Lambda School and 
Tech Elevator and Sabio. These these are high quality growing uh, businesses that have a really long runway in a lot of greenfield, and they're doing an incredible job of bringing the underrepresented populations into tech. For example, I want to see the same thing in the vocational area. This is a great opportunity to rebuild the middle class in America by getting them quality, skilled industrial labor. Uh, this is not just for STEM students at universities, and it's not just for code schools. So I'd be really surprised if in five years there wasn't a, a you know, whole burden for, for industrial or, or a handful of them. Perhaps let's transition to the, the regulation side. Where are we now? What uh, you have some, some some very interesting things that have, have just developed. Why don't you talk a little bit about about sort of the innovation there? Sure. I mean, it, you know, in a way, it, it directly connects back to the question that you asked, Chuck, and 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 some of the things that Chuck just mentioned. Because I think a key uh, component of the evolving landscape for potential ISA providers, and and you know, to put it even more bluntly, the capacity of of a startup to really seize on the opportunity in, on ISA, in ISAs and, and uh, scale to reach it fairly quickly is the regulatory environment, which remains pretty complicated to navigate, fairly difficult to navigate, um, both for the ISA asset servicers and for the education providers and for the investors and for students. So, you know, a, a lot of my work and, and a lot of the work that I've done with Chuck and with others over the past few years has been about creating more clarity in law, um, both at the state level and at the federal level for the ISA model. And, you know, I, I think progress has been slow, but fairly steady. We've had a, a, a great group of uh, people in Congress, Republicans and Democrats, pretty much every flavor of Republican and Democrat too, sign on to uh, a couple different versions of a bill that would more clearly incorporate ISAs into existing consumer financial protection uh, regulation, and also create some meaningful rules of the road for ISA providers. That bill has been introduced in in the last two sessions of the U.S. Congress. And as we're talking now, um, we're days from seeing, I think, uh, a new version of it introduced that, that I think is significantly stronger and, and stronger because it's, it's responsive to how the industry has evolved and changed. And that version of the bill does three things that I think as a as an outside observer are important, as an ISA provider are really important, and as a as a recipient of ISAs or as a school involved in providing ISAs to students are important. First, you know, it does the thing that I mentioned earlier, really brings ISAs out of this sort of liminal regulatory space and places them firmly in the regulatory environment um, for consumer credit. So a whole number of incorporates them in a whole number of existing regulations from the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. You know, an ISA servicer can't call your house at 11 o'clock on, on a Thursday night and yell at your parents about um, the obligation that you have to them. Incorporates into the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. A student has a right to understand the basis of, of an underwriting decision um, that an ISA provider has made to provide them an ISA um, and on what terms. The Truth in Lending Act. So ISA providers have to provide uh, clear, transparent disclosures about all the material terms of an ISA contract. 
So the bill first does that, you know, not always simple work of taking this, this body of consumer financial protection and, and uh, credit anti-discrimination laws and essentially analogizing them to an instrument that at a structural level, as you both know, can be pretty different. So that's sort of the first pillar of the bill. The second is it creates some ISA-specific design standards, contract standards that in order to, to comport with the law, ISA contracts have to follow. So things like having a clear definition of income uh, that doesn't include you know, your spouse's income or your children's income, addressing some of those issues that I mentioned earlier about, about the current debt regime in the U.S. Uh, things like having an income threshold. One of the principal promises of this model is the downside protection it affords students, the sort of coupling of finance and insurance, so to speak. Uh, so the law requires that providers build in uh, a reasonable threshold that's a multiple of the federal poverty level, 200% of the federal poverty level, which for a, for a uh, household of one is about $25,000 a year. It also requires that uh, the contracts be dischargeable in bankruptcy. And that's a really, really big one uh, for the consumer protection community and for a lot of people working on ISAs now. This shouldn't look like the sort of strange and perverse uh, private student loan market, where essentially not only are these things expensive at the outset, they require a cosigner, but they're also virtually impossible to discharge in financial duress. Uh, and so the law makes, makes ISAs different, uh, makes them an improvement, um, and ensures that you know in a situation of real financial hardship, obviously there are already so many more additional structural protections in an ISA for people who are vulnerable, who are struggling to work for one reason or another. Um, but the bill um, uh, brings into that an important protection of, of the broader um, consumer financial protection regime, which is which is qualification for dischargeability and bankruptcy. And then, you know, a sort of grab bag of, of smaller changes like clarifying the tax treatment for students and for investors uh, and also allowing the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, to actually set establish some model disclosures that providers can follow. So so actually bring regulators into the conversation. Um, to establish best practices for providers. So I, I'm, I'm enormously proud of this bill. Um, I think it's a massive step forward for the industry. It's got a great group of, of co-sponsors and authors on it. I think it has an uncertain path to, to passage just by virtue of the fact that it doesn't have a clear home politically. You know, I, I'm sure you've noticed it's, it's increasingly hard to pass standalone legislation um, that doesn't uh, allocate uh, multiple billions of dollars. So we really rely on these small-scale bills being incorporated into larger efforts. In this case, most logically, the, the Higher Education Act, uh, the prospects of which you know are, are, are complicated and wrapped up in the presidential campaign, and also the the sort of whims and whimsies of, of some of the leading figures on the relevant committees. So we'll see where it goes, but but just to have it out there uh, as a uh, uh, sort of setting a standard and starting a new conversation about the way that these things should look at scale. And what we think the meaningful consumer protections are, which aren't always the same ones that we, you know, we might want in place for a credit card or even a private student loan, uh, I think is incredibly meaningful. Isn't, and isn't it, would, well, wouldn't you say this is like a purple issue, so to speak, that the, the left and the right can agree that, you know, a market-based solution to the underlying problem of the crushing student loan debt that's out there, uh, A, exists, and B, needs to be regulated, and uh, that this should be the purview of 
of the private markets rather than government programs. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing, if you, if you want to see one of the stranger realities of higher education policy and maybe of, of, of just lawmaking overall, go and read the sort of preamble statements or the initial remarks of the four leading figures in Congress on higher education policy. So the chairman and the ranking members of the uh, Education and Labor Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the United States Senate. Two very senior Republicans, two very senior Democrats. And if you read these speeches, one was delivered at AEI, another one was delivered at CAP, another was delivered at Brookings. If you read these speeches, they are so clearly singing from the same hymnal. So you're right, Chuck, in the sense that there is bipartisan accord on the diagnosis of some of the, those, those deeper structural problems that I mentioned, those problems of access, affordability, quality, pumping billions of dollars every year into institutions that systematically fail their graduates. So uh, uh, preoccupation with that. So there's bipartisan accord on the collection of problems that a reauthorization should solve for. And there's a lot of agreement on things that I think are highly, highly complementary to the, the sort of features and benefits of ISAs. So for instance, there's a lot of momentum on both sides of the aisle for dramatically expanding the visibility that students and their families and community decision makers and others have into the outcomes that schools generate. Um, right now, it's virtually impossible to access high quality data systematically about the individual or program level outcomes of graduates of, of one college or another. So if you wanted to know as a student in Houston, Texas, uh, who was interested in social work, what a graduate of the University of Houston with a social work degree is likely to make in their first year and fifth year and 10th year in the workforce, a pretty reasonable request informationally as you're deciding uh, where to go to college and for what. It's very, very difficult to find that information. So there's bipartisan accord around really dramatically increasing the visibility people have into the outcomes that schools generate which obviously is, is an independently virtuous um, policy goal that also um, really strengthens the capacity of ISAs to operate at large scale. There's also a lot of support on both sides of the aisle for, as I mentioned in a different context earlier, uh, increasing the income contingent, bolstering and increasing access to, I should say, uh, the income contingent repayment options in the federal loan program. Right now there are five uh, for people who qualify five income-related repayment options um, for federal loans, and there's strong momentum uh, uh, among Republicans and among Democrats to essentially consolidate those plans, which all have different application processes, all have different qualification requirements, consolidate them into one plan. It's more nascent, but there's also a notion that uh, perhaps that would be an opt-in, that would be the default option uh, rather than, or an opt-out, I should say, so that would be the default option for repayment rather than an opt-in. So a lot of things that I think are consonant with the sort of message and, and, and um, what we think benefits of ISAs and a lot of things that, you know, at a structural level are, are similar to ISAs or a necessary component to ISAs. So my hope is not only that we get um, a strong bill that addresses them specifically, but that the broader context of policymaking around higher education in the next six to 12 months also benefits the growth of the market in the direction of, of maximum student centricity um, and economic opportunity. 
my guests today have been Chuck Trafton and Will Nelligan. Uh, guys, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 